This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Bill Dorman. Locally, the issue of contact tracing is a critical part of understanding the spread and impact of COVID-19. It's an area where we've fallen behind our goals here in Hawaii. HBR's Ashley Mizua has been following this story as the pandemic has unfolded. We talked about the issue by going through the state of contact tracers in Hawaii and why contact tracing is important. Well, contact tracers are supposed to identify and um, communicate with people who have had over a 15-minute face-to-face interaction with a confirmed infected person. And they're supposed to follow up with those people throughout the 14-day period when they could develop COVID-19 systems. Contact tracing is just one of the few ways, but a very important way to stop further transmission. And it also becomes more and more important at keeping cases down as infection rates decrease. So the more that we try to decrease cases, the more imperative it is that contact tracing stays in place. And the Department of Health has reported employing over 100 contact tracers and then said that they trained up to 450 by the end of July through a program with the University of Hawaii. And although that number was about 179, according to Health Director Bruce Anderson in early July, but it has been changed to 105. The case numbers here are surging, and at one point, Director Anderson said that contact tracers would be overwhelmed if we had an extended period of over 40 to 50 cases a day, and then even a few days of 100-plus cases daily would quickly overwhelm the system. And then here we are, over seven days of straight triple-digit cases. And he says we are doing okay, and while contact tracers are feeling some pressure, They are still able to do contact tracing, but there were a lot of suspicions that the numbers didn't really add up. So the members of the state Senate COVID committee did a surprise visit to the Department of Health on Friday afternoon. It's exactly what was going on over there since they were really unsatisfied with the information they were getting from the department. And so then when the lawmaker showed up on site and went on that surprise visit, what did they find out? So here's a clip of what some of the senators said describing on what they saw. It just seemed like they were bootstrapping that whole operation. I just don't think the department has ever built any kind of capacity over the several months. They were overloaded with over 100 cases each. They were not able to get through all of the cases or not to even speak of following up with the contact tracing. So that's Senators Jericho Hokalole, Donovan De La Cruz, and Senator Donna Mercado-Kim. Them and then other lawmakers visited the department after failing to get the full answer from the health officials about contact tracing last week Thursday. Senator De La Cruz said that when he was there, people were just kind of scattered throughout the office, sitting wherever they could fit a phone or a computer, so they're in converted lunchrooms and conference rooms. And it wasn't even really clear what divisions of the Department of Health they were being pulled from. Senator Mercado Kim says she learned a contact tracer is not necessarily doing the work full time, finding close contacts with the people who are tested positive so that contact tracing component might be part of a normal Department of Health worker's job duty, so it's just an extension of their current job, instead of the 105 contact tracers that state epidemiologist Sarah Park and Director Anderson Last that they had, there may actually be far fewer people fully dedicated to contact tracing. The only specific contact tracers we saw were the five National Guard, and then there was one specialist. She was actually training a contact tracer in the little copy hole that they were at. That was it. That person said she had 31 cases in addition to training. And Senator Mercado Kim said that another epidemiologist specialist Show them a list of cases that they were prioritizing, which meant that they were looking at the elderly and high-risk populations and then pushing, contacting the other infected people because they really just like could not keep up with the caseload that they were seeing. And they were reporting working from times from like 7 a.m. till 6 at night. Uh, one of the infectious disease experts I spoke with, Tim Brown from the East-West Center, he said that contact tracing, that's not contacting everyone, but only prioritizing a more vulnerable group isn't going to produce the best results. There's a lot of new information here and really some discoveries along the way. So what is the fallout of all of this? So the state's 
lack of robust contact tracing is one of the main reasons why Lieutenant Governor Josh Green, who is an emergency room physician, is basically calling for Dr. Park to step down. Dr. Park has other priorities and a different philosophy. Her philosophy is very smart as far as social distancing and decreasing large gatherings. She's very firm on the high-risk behaviors in the state. But from a reality standpoint, I know what we're capable of and what we're not capable of socially as far as preventing threats. She doesn't have that kind of commitment to a program that is necessary to trace and test everyone. So the senators and Green want the health department to set up a contact tracing hub at the Hawaii Convention Center to house the contact tracers. Um, it's pretty similar to the unemployment processing that they set up over there um, a couple of months ago when um, that department was getting flooded with all of the unemployment claims. So basically, the CDC has granted the Department of Health about $50 million in a grant, which the Department of Health is saying that they can't use for space renovation or renting any extra space, and that they also need equipment like computers and telephones. But Lieutenant Governor Green said that um, that $50 million grant should be more than enough to scale up the contact tracing program. He submitted um, a plan to have that up and going in a week's time at the Hawaii Convention Center if Department of Health Leadership decides that that's the direction that they want to go. In terms of a hiring plan and the Department of Health, what was their game plan for hiring in terms of moving to the next phase of this? The Department of Health had said that they only wanted to hire people on an as-needed basis. So they weren't planning on, you know, hiring. So once they finished training those 450 people at UH, at the end of July, they weren't going to try and hire like a whole hundred of them, for example. They said that they would just do it in terms of, oh, if we need more contact tracers, we'll hire more. Um, for the past several weeks, they've been saying that they would be hiring 10 or more contact tracers a week. Although it's unclear now if that means that they have actually hired those 10 more contact tracers, if that ever happened, or if it's still in the process. And again, it's not um, necessarily money issues, because the Department of Health does have those funds. You know, that's a very unusual phrase to use when government planning is involved, that it's not about the money. But so if it's not about the money, then what are the issues with the hiring plan? Right. So the main issues with the hiring plan is they need space and they need equipment and telephones. Um, and again, Dr. Park has said that that $50 million grant from the CDC can't be used for scaling up any infrastructure, so they can't use it on rent or renovation. But infectious disease experts spoke with um, Tim Brown, he mentioned earlier that one of the main pitfalls to Department of Health plans if you have trained these people, but they require additional training to work with the state systems and so on, that additional training should have been part of their training. Further, they need practicum training. They need actual training in the field. Contact tracing is not something that everybody takes to. It requires a certain amount of ability to interview people. It requires the ability to be authoritative. It requires the ability to be empathic. It requires the ability to get information out of people that many people do not want to give. That's a skill that takes time to build. So another pitfall to the DOH's hiring plan for contact tracers is once they hire the already trained contact tracers, they need someone to help train them again to onboard them onto the state computer system. So that's one issue that they're having trouble finding people to train the incoming hires um, again. And then also, as um, Brown mentioned, it takes a lot to learn how to do the contact tracing, and that is developed on the job. Um, when New York City began widespread contact tracing, the results from that were pretty disastrous. While there were 3,000 contact tracers hired, they were only able to reach about 64% of the almost 20,000 people who tested positive between June 1st and July 25th. And then less than half of those people, infected people, provided those contact tracers, even just one contact that they may have exposed. The Department of Health doesn't release that data publicly. so. We have really no idea about any information on that front, whether how successful they've been with contact tracing, the quality of it anyway. Lieutenant Governor Green said each infected person has about 10 to 20 close contacts, but uh, Director Anderson has repeated that number to me and said that it's probably much lower, although he couldn't provide an average number. He said it just varies. Senator Mercado Kim said during her visit to the department 
one of the epidemiology specialists told her that an easy case takes about two hours on initial contact with the single infected person and that the number of close contacts can quickly grow from the people they're living with, the family members, if they're going to work, if they went to the gym, and then if they saw any friends during that time. That math adds up pretty quickly. So in terms of another set of numbers with with capacity, uh, give us a sense in terms of breaking down some of the numbers or, or where we are. Are we overwhelmed at this point when it comes to contact tracing? And, and what happens if we are? Right. So Director Anderson said that each contact tracer can handle up to 25 contacts at a time. So if we do take Department of Health reporting that they do have 105 contact tracers, the department can monitor up to 2,625 people, and that's just 105 times 25 contacts at a time. And this 2,625 people would include keeping up with both confirmed cases and also their close contacts, and they have to monitor them for that full 14 days. Uh, Currently, right now, there are 2,052 active COVID-19 cases statewide. So even if each active case only has one additional close contact, the 105 contact tracers would be just completely overwhelmed, almost double the amount. Director Anderson and Dr. Park haven't specified at what point the department would stop contact tracing. As many states have become overwhelmed with cases, have done Um, They said multiple times that that scenario could definitely happen here in Hawaii where there's just such an overwhelm, the the contact traces are just so overwhelmed um, that they would essentially just have to give up. Um, But Director Anderson and Park have both said that that is not an ideal situation. And infectious disease expert Brown says um, to absolutely not give up on contact tracing. And now is actually the time to really double down on efforts and hire people to prepare the tracers. He says, even though that this huge spike may have caught people off guard, um, it was almost predictable because he says the public messaging that's been going on has been pretty poor here. And people don't really understand that even though, you know, a walk is down to gatherings must be 10 people or smaller, but if 10 people get together and you're talking about five couples from five different households, Brown says that's basically just a big COVID party. When we asked for an interview with Director Anderson or Dr. Park about what's going on and their take on what's going on with contact tracers, a spokesperson said due to their extreme workload, they'll not only be responding to media questions during scheduled news briefings. And the Hawaii Government Employees Association, which is the union that represents contact tracers and government employees, they actually filed a grievance for the workers who perform the COVID-19 tracing, field swabbing, and outreach response. You know, contact tracing is just really a black hole of information for us. We don't know how many people are being contacted or how long it takes them to be contacted because the Department of Health doesn't make any of that information public. And the only thing we thought we knew about contact tracing was how many contact tracers there are, and now we aren't even sure about that. Ashley Mizuo, tracking the tracers, the contact tracing, just one part of this continuing story of COVID-19. Ashley, thanks very much for your work. Thanks so much. You can find Ashley's stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Another piece of the COVID-19 pandemic story is about jobs. Without tourism, the local jobs market is taking a tremendous hit, of course. There are also questions about the long-term outlook for jobs, both here in Hawaii and nationally. A Dallas-based data analytics firm called ThinkY recently released a report taking a longer view of the economy around the country and here in the state. The Conversations' Harrison Patino spoke with Jay Denton, a chief innovation officer of ThinkY. Denton sees a challenging road ahead for Hawaii, but also with some bright spots along the way. What's really interesting about it, 1.8 million jobs in a single month. If we went prior to COVID and we said 1.8 million jobs for this full year, people might have been kind of excited about it because it was getting so hard to roles because of how low the unemployment rate is and, that, and you know Hawaii we'll talk about it more specifically later but 
but Hawaii's unemployment rate was even tighter than the national average. And so to get $1.8 million in a month would seem like everyone should be ecstatic. In a lot of ways, I'm sure people are. But on the other hand, there's this bit of caution because we know that we've seen COVID counts rise. I know in Hawaii, we've certainly seen that over the last month or so, and restrictions now starting to be tightened a bit. And we can just we can just see and feel that the road ahead uh, until we actually get a vaccine is likely going to be a, a little bit of a bumpy one. And so perhaps more moderate growth ahead. And so that, that's why it's, it's hard to celebrate too much over 1.8 million jobs, even though the number itself is fantastic. It's the third largest of any month in U.S. history behind the last two months we just had. So uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a mixed answer uh, for something that should seem so positive. People aren't necessarily because, you know, because of uh, everyone, perhaps, well, not everyone, but a lot of people are working from home these days because of either, you know, state or, or, or local restrictions or um, what the businesses have just decided that let's, let's work remote. And so there's been much more of a comfort in terms of trusting people uh, to, to work at home. I'll tell you, in some industries, at some businesses, working from home might have carried a little bit of a stigma before. Uh, today, that's changed, and it's changed very, very quickly. And I think that we'll start to see more companies consider hiring remote, not just in their markets, but in some cases for markets where, you know, the, the cost of living is lower and you perhaps, you know, as you're trying to figure out how you, you know, your revenues are down, how do you solve the expense side of the equation? Remote workers uh, out of metropolitan areas where there's a, a lower cost of living, which commands lower salaries. Uh, that's, I think, a big shift that the challenge that remains there, though, is that it's still different being in an office and being around people and the type of culture um, and, and what that feels like. So it'll be an interesting challenge to see how that plays out over the next few years after hopefully we get a vaccine, as has been uh, mentioned recently, early in 2021, to see if we see a, a big return wave to the office, uh, more people working at home or some sort of hybrid in between. Working by home has sort of become uh, by necessity in these recent months. Some experts are saying that working from home might just be the way of the future. Is that what you think? I think for certain roles, it is much more feasible, um, where you're able to mostly work by yourself. Uh, some of these are uh, customer support type roles or support services where you know, usually you're on your computer speaking with someone else. I think that's a lot easier. There are other jobs that are just going to be harder to replace long term, I think, uh, by by working remote. Again, many of those are, are in the service industry. So those at restaurants and other places like that, I think it's going to be harder to, to change. But we're starting to see other businesses shift and, and, and help with that. So home delivery services, we've seen like couriers and messengers, that type of uh, employment base grow because people are getting more stuff delivered at home. And so I do think we'll see some shifts, uh, but to a degree, I believe I believe that there will be people go back to the office simply because of the culture benefit that it's hard to replace. Now, looking long term here, what are your key predictions for the labor market here in Hawaii if the tourism industry remains shuttered and ultimately kind of changes completely, looking at less tourism altogether? What do you think the landscape of Hawaii's job market will look like? Well, I do think that, as I mentioned a bit earlier, the tourism industry, you might even call it the experience industry, I do think that it has the ability that once people are able to hopefully revert back to social behaviors like we knew them before, we could see it change rapidly um, because it's hard to it's hard to get that experience through technology. It's not something that you know one of the big technology firms can just simulate what it's like going to the beach or to a swim-up bar at, at one of the hotels. And so I do think there's the chance that it could outperform expectations. But right now, you know, generally we're seeing uh, the leisure and hospitality industry, which would include, you know, tourism as part of it, likely taking until 2025 or longer to return. And some of that's logistical, as I mentioned, when, when airlines revenues are down 60 to 80 percent and cruises are down more than 90 percent, you know, they're, they're changing what their schedules look like. So even as, as the market improves, there will be some logistical things that can make it a little bit harder to rebound the way that you think could happen. We do think, again, that once we get past uh, COVID, that the market could rebound sharply and likely will rebound sharply. The big thing is how do we bridge the gap between now and then in terms of uh, looking at Capitol Hill for any sort of stimulus packages that will be available, uh, but likely more moderate growth. So I think, you know, in the near term. So it's important for businesses to really focus on where are the opportunities today uh, and, 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 you know, build their strategy around that. But we do believe it will bounce back. I think it will just take a little bit longer. Overall, the U.S. economy, we believe, will, will get back to full employment by around late 2023. Because of some of those nuances, you know, for Hawaii, it, it's probably a year or two beyond that.
Jay Denton is with the data analytics firm ThinkWhy, speaking there with conversation producer Harrison Patino. And Harrison joins us at a safe distance here in the studio with more on that report. And Harrison, what else did you take away from your talk with Denton and the company's work on this? Hey, Bill. So, yeah, as you might imagine, the outlook is about as bleak as you would think, but he did identify some bright spots going forward. That recent July job reports that he mentioned in the beginning is a tentative cause for moderate celebration. Denton is pretty hopeful at the recent numbers because they are historic, historic for all the wrong reasons, but the general consensus is to take the uh, jump in jobs with a huge grain of salt. Uh, conditions are nowhere near stable. All indications, like you said, seems like it's going to take a while, many, many years. And Hawaii itself is uh, going to lag behind the rest of the nation with pre-COVID levels of employment. It's not going to take until about 2025 uh, or maybe a little bit sooner, but it's a long way off. It's an interesting point in terms of the split between the national and Hawaii. Any particular reason why Hawaii is lagging in terms of restoring some of those numbers? Well, as you could probably imagine, tourism plays a pretty significant role in that, not just in Hawaii, but across the nation. Denton identifies these sort of jobs as leisure as hospitality. More specifically here, those are pretty intrinsically linked with the hotel industry. Uh, Nationally, those jobs are down by about 60%, specifically here in Hawaii. Uh, Hotel jobs shrank from roughly 43,000 jobs pre-COVID to around 11,000 now, which is a three-quarters decrease, and it's pretty huge. Uh, The numbers have started to bounce back, but they are still roughly at about 60% of the pre-pandemic numbers, which is on par with the national average as well. And there are some other industries that they uh, looked at and identifying as being particularly hard hit. Yeah, as you might have mentioned, Denton really kind of boils the whole hospitality industry, especially pertinent to why he calls that the experience industry, which is yeah, pretty interesting phrase. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty uh, intrinsically linked with tourism. Bars and restaurants, of course, play a pretty huge role in that. These kind of hospitality jobs have remained the hardest hit here in Hawaii, basically the hardest hit sector. Nationally, jobs in the restaurant industry are down by about 20%, but here it's doubled at roughly 40% of where it was in February. Sheer numbers, that's about 70,000 restaurant jobs pre-COVID. Now that's about 40,000 jobs. They've been climbing by about 10,000 in the last month or two, but like I said, still pretty far off. Also some areas where Hawaii is ahead of the national average with employment. Well, we did talk about some bright spots. Denton identified three st- three sectors. Uh, construction is the first one, particularly high-rises, as you might imagine here in Honolulu. And that includes all the uh, specialty contractors and tradesmen that comes with them, plumbers, electricians, et cetera. Mm-hmm. As you might expect, the demand for these trades sank pretty sharply when things first started to shut down, but they're actually pretty stable here in Hawaii. Finance as well, which is actually a pretty small industry compared to other large urban hubs, is actually relatively stable. It employs about 16,000 people here, and jobs in that sector are only down by about 1%. So it's really more or less the same pre-COVID. Lastly was grocery stores, department stores, and general merchandise. What's interesting in that this report kind of shows those three sectors lumped together in one larger sector. So while the total number of jobs remains the same at about 39,000, which is on par with pre-pandemic levels, it's unclear if these workers from like a department store, which we've seen a lot of closures of, might have migrated to more grocery store jobs, which have been hiring pretty consistently since the beginning of all this. Interesting. And, and a lot of uh, flexibility, I guess, in some of those uh, numbers. Bit of a uh, bit of a moving target as, mm-hmm. we, uh, as we go forward. Thanks, Harrison. Yeah, of course. Harrison Patino, producer here on The Conversation. You can find out more at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands, now and in the future. Matson.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about the next generation wireless technology called 5G. We'll find out how much of the country is adopting this new technology and what benefits it brings to mobile applications. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces until 9 p.m. on Pauhana Friday evenings through September 11th. HonoluluMuseum.org. Modeling the behavior of the coronavirus remains another challenge, both here in Hawaii and around the world. But according to some models, we now have the fastest growing infection rate in the country. That's the topic of today's reality check with Honolulu Civil Beat data reporter Yu Hyun Jung. Good morning, and thanks for uh, joining us, Yu Hyun. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me today. So right at the top of your story, you use the phrase, an alarming new phase of the pandemic. Where are we from a data standpoint? Well, there are multiple data points uh, telling us that there's a huge spike uh, in cases and also um, the the uh, infection rate, as you mentioned before, and also the test positivity rate. So there are multiple reasons uh, for us to think that we are in a different state of the pandemic than um, we previously were. And, you know, when as folks report on the uh, on the, the growth of this, the, the number of cases, it almost becomes sort of a grim daily box score. We just heard uh, 202 new cases uh, today. But again, as, as you mentioned, that's just one data point. Um, others, the percentage of tests coming back positive, for instance. Right. Uh, so so th- there are multiple data points to consider. So if you think about uh, the, the, the 202 figure, uh, for instance, um, it, that's just one metric. And, you know, what's really grabbing people's attention right now is the in- infection rate or the effective reproduction rate or RT, as epidemiologists call it. Uh, basically, that's the statistical estimate of how many people an infected person, an already infected person, would spread the virus to. And um, different models are basically projecting that Hawaii has the highest rate in the country. And across the board, the agreed upon baseline is one. So if that value is above one, it means COVID-19 is likely to spread more quickly. And the area should expect to see many, many more cases. And if it's below one, it's less likely. So as of right now, I'm looking at uh, the model from RT Live, and it says the infection rate for Hawaii is at 1.29. And that's down from 1.4 yesterday. Uh, So Hawaii still is at the top of the list among the states, followed by Minnesota and South Dakota. So if you and and these are the this rate is uh, something that a lot of uh, folks have been reporting on, uh, and it's this one metric that we should look at. But because all these models uh, calculate a little bit differently, um, experts are saying don't obsess too much over these values, but rather look at what the trends are showing. And if you look at the graph, it does show an upward trend, and it's definitely showing that COVID-19 is a problem in Hawaii. You know, it's it's interesting, as you point out in your uh, piece, Nick Redding uh, over at the Hawaii Data Collaborative said that his team doesn't use that that RT rate in in their dashboard because of a degree of uncertainty associated with that. It's true. Um, What he told me is that he uses in his dashboard more absolute figures than forecasting uh, figures like uh, the RT, uh, because that's more that's better left to uh, folks like HIPAM, the modeling group. Um, And and his team likes to focus on things that are, you know, concrete. So that's the difference there. And as you say, the, the bottom line with a lot of this is to step back and look at the trend lines, and those uh, those continue to rise. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so what, we can obsess over the raw figures, but um, what experts are really cautioning us to do is to really, as you said, step back, look at the trend lines, but the trend lines definitely show us that it's, it's going up. And if you go to the Hawaii Data Collaborative website and look at all these different charts charts and graphs, you will see that there are definitely spikes and that there is cause for concern, and we should definitely modify our behavior accordingly. Data reporter Yu Hyun Jung with today's Reality Check. And you can read her story at civilbeat.org. And Yu Hyun, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me.
governments around the world have been dealing with various aspects of this COVID-19 pandemic. Some are unique to certain locations, but there are a lot of elements of commonality as well. One area that's interesting to look at is urban nightlife during the COVID pandemic. Some recent reports offer information that actually is relevant to our own situation in Hawaii. And uh, Neil Milner, uh, our contributing editor, and he of the long view, has been looking into this and uh, joins us this morning with, uh, with a deeper look at this. And, and Neil, the concept of regulating nightlife is a bit complicated in, in the best of times. Uh, Yes, it's complicated in the best of times, and it gets even more complicated unless you you make the assumption which Vibe Lab, which is a big social planning organization that's been looking into this, and kind of common sense is if you take the assumption that nightlife is not important and it's a problem, then you essentially say, let's just cut it off. Let's just, you know, close the places down. Because on the one hand, we know that music clubs and bars and uh, outdoor close-type dance activities there are, are sources of super spreaders. But on the other hand, if you, uh, make, if you uh, think about other things, that first of all, the uh, nightlife businesses are it's a big business, uh, very economically valuable, but it's made up of a lot of vulnerable small businesses. If you also think that nightlife is a culturally important part of the life and the vibrancy of a city, and not just for younger people, but for everybody else. And another assumption, and these are all based on, you know, on reality, is that if you, don't, if you don't open them, if you cut them off, there's an excellent chance that these kinds of risky behaviors will take place anyway in private in illicit places, private parties and so on. So what Vibe Lab tries to do and there's, uh, is to say, okay, given that dilemma, what can we do to uh, find ways to open some of these opportunities in a safe sort of way? And their first report is about creating more outside space. They're going to write a series of reports. They've looked at places around the world, cities around the world. So that's where, that's where Vibe Lab is coming from. And the idea you point out the uh, the idea that this is this is small business really we're talking about as that that sort of two pronged uh, vision of this that that one it is a nightlife is a big business but it's comprised of many smaller businesses and that is part of the through line in in terms of trying to address this not only on a health side, but also recognizing the economic implications. Yeah, that's right. And um, as I say, if you want to be dismissive about nightlife and those kind of businesses, I'm putting that in quotes, then it's easy. But if you see these you know, bar owners and small restaurant owners and club owners as essentially trying to get by the same way that vulnerable that small businesses elsewhere try to get by in other sectors, then you see what the, you see what the problem is. Uh, the, the nightlife uh, bars and music clubs have another kind of problem that's related to this, and that it in influences what happens when you try to help them out. They tend to be in neighborhoods that are kind of marginal. If you think of what Kaka'ako or marginal or changing Kaka'ako, certain parts of Waikiki, some places downtown, and what happens is that as cities have tried to figure out a way to increase outdoor space to have, um, like this, like Berlin, for example, to, to find places that are as big as 1,000 square feet that allow for outdoor activities. You begin to uh, make incursions on, on neighborhoods and on neighbors, especially in gentrifying areas, who are not used to this kind of thing and, and protest it. So there's a lot of kind of back and forth that go on here. Cities have tried to increase outdoor space, regulate the outdoor space, maybe even require a temporary license so that uh, the venue can carry these out. But as soon as you do that, you know, you're moving into the streets maybe, you're cutting off traffic, or you're making a lot more noise for, uh, you know, for people. It, it would be the same in the downtown area, if in, in downtown Honolulu. If you suddenly did more of this, you're running into these kind of dilemmas. But that's what a lot of the work on the ground has been about is to try to figure out a way that you can both negotiate safe space and and have a way that keeps that space safe 
in, in other words, trying to regulate the behavior of a bunch of people outdoors in, let's say, a, a, a performance space of, uh, you know, much larger than you would have indoors. So, yeah, it's safe outdoors, but you still got the regulation problem. And that's where it gets kind of interesting, what, what they've tried to do to regulate. And what you're talking about really is a very, very community-based um, cities on the larger scale, but really it, it scopes down pretty quickly to communities in, in different and different areas. One of the uh, interesting bits in the uh, article talks about uh, it, it, nightmares. Nightmares. Um, yeah. it, talk a bit about that and how they play a role. With well, those. nightmares are not officially mayors, but they're um, they are official and they exist in a number of cities, mostly in Europe. And what a nightmare is, is a person who is both an advocate but more likely a facilitator and a negotiator for issues that occur at night. What, the, what it means is that you have a person who is committed to the legitimacy of nightlife and whose job it is to figure out ways with the help of stakeholders to make things work. So, for example, if you're trying to create... I mean, this exists well before, um, well before the COVID uh, pandemic. But if you're trying to create a space uh, that would be open for people to uh, participate in, you know, a, a, a dance or whatever, you get, together, you get together the stakeholders, you help negotiate it, and so on. So one of the ways that these cities have tried to do this is through a kind of process of, let's call it pre-event negotiation and mediation, where you sit down with people and you say, okay, here's the space. There's a lot of possible problems here. What can we do to mitigate the problems? How are you going to get people to behave? How are you going to get folks to buy in you, the neighbors? What is it necessary to do in order to make you happy? It sounds like a, a big kind of meeting facilitation with a lot of uh, importance behind it. So that's, that's what the nightmare is. You know, you also uh, mentioned the, uh, the the value and importance of persuasion within all of this. At, at some point, as you say, regulating human behavior is, is a yeah. uh, universal challenge. But it also is not one that only involves law enforcement. No, for sure. And I mean, that this is you know this it reminds me of my own professional life when I used to study this for a living. You, this is a basic issue of how you get people to behave in certain ways. And so if you see what's happening now, we've cracked down in Hawaii generally again. The police have made a, more pre a larger presence. They're out there. They're doing things that are more coercive, you know, citations and so on. But the, what, what the Vibe Lab people say is what everybody else knows. You simply cannot rely on uh, coercion as the only way, not because uh, we're too nice to do that, but because it's not very practical. So these other cities have tried to figure out a way to persuade people during the course of the events to do, you know, to, to behave in certain kind of ways. They'll hire regular folks who are persuaders who go through the um, who go through the crowds and point people out and so on. Or the French use. Uh, what the French actually use um, a private nonprofit um, or that that uses mime that uses now before everybody starts to laugh. Think about it this way: they dress as sad clowns, Too they late. don't talk, they walk through the crowds, and they mime how people should behave, and they point out people that don't behave. It's been fairly effective, but remember what makes this work and what may be something as a model for other places. This is a historically anchored and culturally resonant form of, of, uh, uh, of existence. Mimes are, they have an old history in France. It goes back to Moliere. People recognize it. So that you're using kind of legitimate people, historically and culturally legitimate people, to make requests to others. So that's, a, that's what other cities have tried you know, have tried to do that they that they realize it. So I don't know. There, there's certainly nothing. There is here no path no real parallel for yeah, Hawaii well, on on the mime score, but but certainly some interesting perspectives on that concept of urban nightlife. Neil, thanks very much. You're welcome. We've been talking with Neil Milner. He's a retired professor of political science and contributing editor of our segment, The Long View.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org Tune in to HPR One Saturday night for the next Hawaii Public Radio presents Blue Note Virtually Live. This week, it's singer-songwriter Amy Hanayali, one of Hawaii's top-selling female vocalists. We'll share a performance from the Blue Note Hawaii stage and a backstage interview, too. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Tune in to HPR One or listen on the HPR mobile app. We wind up our series this week looking at what leaders in our health care facilities are doing to support their workers with self-care and avoiding burnout. We reached out to Maui to talk to Kaiser Permanente's Heather Goff. Dr. Goff is a psychiatrist who began offering a midday meditation session to all Kaiser employees. Dr. Goff explains how it all got started some five months ago. There's been a lot more, you know, research in the last year's research into mindfulness meditation has really exploded. It's kind of all over the place now. Um, it's something that we recommend to our patients. Um, and, it, you know, I think with all this stress, I myself was even thinking, okay, how do I deal with this? There's so much uncertainty. Um, you know, as a healthcare worker, we're essential workers, we're working. I just, how do we, how do we deal with this stress? And so um, I, I can't re- even remember exactly when we started, but I just said, hey, I'm going to start doing meditation in the middle of the day, and if anyone would like to sit with me um, to, to do it together, I'd be happy to do that. And pretty soon thereafter, we were able, I was able to start doing it. Um, we also do it not via Zoom, but via Teams, um, so it's all online. So every day at 12.15, we have a very brief 15-minute meditation that anybody that is, you know, in our organization is welcome to join and sit in on. Um, and we've been doing that since since March. Um, and it's been really great to be able to have that break in the middle of the day and to take a pause and to be able to kind of regroup and reset and um, have that time also just to connect a little bit, um, not only with ourselves, but, but with each other, too. In fact, I just did, just just got off it just now, <laughs> right before I spoke with you. It's really kind of the pause that refreshes, I guess, in the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, it, we long have talked, you know, I certainly think about ways to, to try to help get through through a tough and stressful and difficult day. And there's a lot of different ways, right, that people do that, right? People go out and they stop for lunch and they go for a run. And I think certainly a lot of healthcare providers are so dedicated to their work that sometimes self-care can fall by the wayside. Um, so so having that, that time and, and just a place to show up, I think is just a good reminder. Um, and there's actually been some pretty interesting you know, research and data that, that has looked at mindfulness practices for healthcare providers. Um, and the, the results are, they're interesting to look at. And but definitely we know mindfulness practices can be really helpful in reducing stress and reducing anxiety and, um, and so many other things. So it's, it's just I think, a really good opportunity for people to be able to, to have some stress reduction and, and prevent burnout and, and to be able to stay um, focused and, and, and present. For the, for the really hard work that, that they're all doing. So walk us through, how does this work out during the middle of the day, though? You know, when you've got, you know, a laundry list, you know, for the nurses of all the things they've got to do for patient care. I mean, is it on their lunch break? Do they have to jump into a, a conference room? Or, or how does that work? It's a little bit tough schedule-wise because we all, right, have really busy schedules. So essentially, we have a scheduled, basically, conference call um, that people can call into. It's from 12.15 to 12.30, Monday through Friday. And if people are available, they're welcome to just show up um, for that. Uh, I certainly have heard from people who have said, oh, I wish I could come, but I, you know, I'm working through lunch or I can't make it this week. And that is, that is really hard. Although I think for everybody, you know, even hearing about some of these kinds of practices and ways that healthcare providers can take care of themselves, you know, even if, even if, you know, a nurse or, you know, the pharmacist or the doctor can't participate in our daily meditation, you know, meeting call. 
you know, I hope it's also just a platform or a springboard for them to say, oh, okay, but this is something, you know, maybe that I can do on my own um, and, and to carve even just a couple minutes out for that on their, on their own. So th- this was something then that was started as a result of the COVID crisis and the COVID stress. And, and you know, obviously we all know that Maui Memorial did the, had the first outbreak and everybody was very worried about, you know, everybody's well-being you know, from the patients to the staff. And, and so, right. so is this something, so this that's when you started it. It's, it wasn't something that you had offered regularly before. Correct, right. I, I had never done this before. I mean, I'm not a meditation expert either, right? There are lots of people who have been meditating for, for decades and teach about it. And this is really just something that I am practicing and, and just started saying, hey, let's invite other people to start to practice, too, because that's really what, that's how we talk about meditation, too, right? This is a practice. It's just something that we're learning um, and something that we just keep doing. Um, so, yeah, we just started it during COVID, and I initially thought it would be, oh, it'll be just for a couple of weeks, and then and then it will stop, but it got really great feedback, and people found it to be really helpful um, and really wanted to keep going. So we are just continuing. You know, I don't, as of right now, I don't, I don't know if and when we'll stop. I hope that we continue in one, one form or another ongoing, you know, even however many months from now, um, because it, it is such a powerful and really, really wonderful thing for people to be able to experience. And do you know, is anybody doing it on any of the other islands or can people, let's say from Oahu join in? So the the, te- the meeting that I do every day at 12.15 is open to all Kaiser Permanente providers. And if people didn't get an invitation in their email then or they can't find it, everybody is always welcome just to contact me and say, hey, I want to participate in that. So it's, it's open to everybody on all islands, which is the great thing about being able to do it through a technology or a platform like, you know, like Teams or Zoom, because it really has allowed us to have these, this, this greater reach. Are you drawing mainly nurses or technicians or is it a mix of, you know, do you have any doctors? A mix. Mm-hmm. All of the above. It really is a mix of, you know, doctors and PAs and nurses and techs and clerks and, you know, people in administration. We all need it, right? We all, we all are, are just trying to get through the day. And because of the headlines of these large counts, you know, people are, are probably more concerned because they're worried that that's going to translate to more patients in the hospital and more fatal cases. Certainly, it's certainly a scary thing to think about, right? Um, I think the uncertainty around all of this, from my perspective, at least, I think, you know, and, and even thinking in, in terms of my work as a psychiatrist, uncertainty is so hard for us. <laughs> um, and... And just the not knowing and the anticipating but not being sure, um, that could be a, really a challenge to try to manage all those all those thoughts and feelings that come up. Uh, and that's actually one of the things that mindfulness does, right? I mean, mindfulness meditation really helps us to start to quiet the, the alarm danger part of the brain. So that's the part of the brain known as the amygdala. So that's like the old caveman brain that's that's the brain that's a, that's the part of the brain that says danger, danger, danger. Fight or flight. Exactly, fight or flight, right? So and and mindfulness helps us to start to quiet that part of the brain and and make that a little bit less active. While at the same time it's really strengthening the thinking part of the brain. Right? The prefrontal cortex, the, the part of the brain that does the thinking and planning and decision making and observing. Um, so that even when that uncertainty or all these kinds of feelings or experiences come up, mindfulness meditation practice allows us to start to be a little bit more of an observer um, and to step away a little bit from some of that initial fight or flight response so that we can manage better. A couple people have said that it's been really helpful just to have that period of time carved out. Like it's like making an appointment with yourself, right? I'm going to be here at that time. And for some people, they've never tried meditation before. So it's a brand new experience and something that they're really excited about trying and finding that, oh, wow, this is actually really interesting and and really helpful. For healthcare providers who are really on the front line and many even more so than myself, right? I mean, there are so many people that are really being faced with this every single day. And, you know, burnout Stress and anxiety, those are all really very real things, especially when healthcare providers and the people supporting them and, you know, all the folks in the organization are, are being stressed and really being asked to, 
be on high alert and to be providing care to so many people. I always remind the people um, that are meditating with me, one of my favorite sort of visual examples goes back to anatomy. (laughs) And when we think about blood supply, you know, the heart pumps blood to everywhere in the body, right? And, And I ask people, where does the first blood go when it leaves the heart? I don't, do you know where the first blood goes when it leaves the heart? Where does it first go? No. No? <laughs> a lot know? of people say the brain, thinking, oh, well, of course, the brain is the most important organ in the body, right? And that makes sense. But if you actually look at the anatomy of the heart, the blood vessels that first leave actually go back to the supply of the heart itself. So the first blood that leaves the heart goes back to the heart. And it just really points to the idea of self-care and, and that, you know, we as healthcare providers really can do so much more if we also are actively engaged in, you know, participating and actively engaged in that self-care. Um, and I think, you know, it's awesome. I feel really blessed to work in an organization where, you know, that is such a key thing and taken really seriously and really encouraged, right? The fact that, you know, this is something that we can do and offer to people has really been pretty amazing. Blood to the heart. HPR's Catherine Cruz talking with Kaiser Permanente's Heather Goff, a psychiatrist who started a midday meditation session for the hospital's workers to help with stress reduction and burnout during these COVID times. That is the program for today, but a note about some special programming starting tomorrow. We'll be airing the first of two marketplace specials on the economic impact of COVID-19. You can leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online. Just look under HPR News and Talk for The Conversation on hawaiipublicradio.org. The Conversation will be back on Monday. So will Catherine Cruz. I'm Bill Dorman. Aloha.